This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 7th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we start with staff writer Robert Service. He talks to me about a new type of LED. This one uses the same special minerals called perovskites that have been catching on in solar energy. And I also talk with Caitlin Thurber about her paper from Science Advances on what a 140-day transcontinental marathon can tell us about the limits of human endurance. Now we have Robert Service, a staff writer at Science, and he's here to talk about perovskites, which I'm sure I've heard once a week for the past five years, the word perovskites. Uh, they, they have a lot of applications, and in this case, we're going to talk about their use in LEDs, in light-emitting diodes. But I typically hear them associated with solar energy. Right, Bob? We've written quite a number of stories about perovskites in the past, and perovskites are a large collection of materials that share a common crystal structure. And these materials have been exciting and very exciting for the research community in recent years because they've proven to be very efficient solar cell materials. So they're really good at absorbing sunlight and then converting that energy into electricity. But we're, we're talking about LEDs, right? What this is, is it's kind of the reverse. You feed energy or electricity or a form of light energy or something into these materials, and then they convert that into specific colors of light that they then emit. And so this is what LEDs do, and LEDs are very common in the modern daily life. Our lights have them, our TVs have them, are made of them, our cell phone displays have LEDs. What's in an LED? It's not perovskites right now. What's in there? Right. So there's quite a number of different materials that are used in LEDs. There's a whole class of inorganic compounds that are commonly used in lighting fixtures. LED lights you would buy from Home Depot, for example, I believe would, would be made with those materials. Whereas in our cell phone displays and in many TVs that have LED TV displays, many of those are organic materials. So those are nice because they can be processed differently and they, they have different advantages. And where perovskites sort of enter this whole picture is that perovskites are really simple to make. They use very commonly available starting materials, and then they can be processed very easily at low temperature. They don't require being grown in under a vacuum hood or anything right. very complex. And so it opens the door towards making 
very large area lights or large area displays with perovskites, that would also be quite cheap. Whereas the other ones are a more complex manufacturing process. For solar cells, yes, that's absolutely yeah. correct. So for example, if with a silicon solar cell, you have to grow the silicon ingot and then which is a purified silicon and then you have to slice it and then arrange it and so with perovskites you can basically just brew up a, a liquid solution of the starting materials and then spread it out over a surface and then you heat it up very gently and, and the materials crystallize out of that mm-hmm. perovskite is actually a description of the crystal shape it can have many different components in this crystal Is that how they would make a display out of perovskites that was different colors? Would they use different minerals within the same display? Yes. In short, if you want to make a visible light display, right, and you want to develop the primary colors, so red, green, and blue, and then by combining different levels of those colors, you can make the other colors with the rainbow. With perovskites, you tune the color based on the chemical composition of the perovskite itself. So they actually have a different recipe of the perovskite for green than they do for red and then they do for blue. You know, the idea would be to make individual nano-sized components of one recipe and then organize them in a way that makes pixels for a display. And one of the papers that we write about is a paper that came out last week in Science Advances, and it offered a way to make a pretty sophisticated display using perovskites. And they they first synthesized their different recipes for the different colors of the perovskites. And then they used an advanced 3D printer to not only make different pixels of the different colors, but then to orient the nanocrystals or the nanowires, in this case, within each of the pixels. And so the nanowires emit their colors better in one direction than they do another. And so those light waves oscillate with a particular favored orientation, and that's light polarization. So when you have polarized sunglasses that screen out a certain polarization, that's the same idea here. So light is getting emitted in a preferred direction, and then they use filters to select which colors of light they wanted to see. So if you say you had perovskites that were going to shine red, and they were oriented with their nanowires facing horizontally, say, well, then you would just turn your polarizer so it too was horizontal, and then that light would come through and you could see it. Well, it was at the same time, it was blocking the other colors. And then by just turning the polarizer, you could just tune whatever color you wanted to see. Very cool. Okay. What are some of the major advantages of using perovskites in LEDs? The main advantage of perovskites in LEDs is the prospects for making cheap, large area lights and displays. The other thing that we've seen with perovskites is they've caught up in efficiency. They're they're doing really well on the solar side. Has something similar happened with their ability to emit light in the LED format? The answer to your question is yes. That's exactly what is happening now is that the perovskites are really catching up to, in this case, the organic LEDs. By reaching that milestone, that reaches a level of performance that is a commercial standard. What is the target efficiency for taking electricity and turning it into an LED? And where is uh, perovskite technology along that spectrum? There's different benchmarks for different applications for efficiency. So the the lighting technology that is used in light bulbs and homes like that, those can actually be really quite efficient. I believe some of them are around 50% and then they go up from there. 
even higher. That's really quite impressive. And and if you've ever touched a regular incandescent light bulb, you know how hot it is. The reason is, is that a regular incandescent light is extremely inefficient. Most of the energy in an incandescent light is going to convert it into heat, which is why you burn your hand if you touch them. But if you happen to touch or get close to an LED light in your house, they are not very hot. And that's because most of the electricity is being converted into light. So for perovskites, ideally, you just want to go as high as you can because that makes them more cost effective. It also means that if you're creating less heat, that can have other problems that can cause breakdown of the devices. So if you're if most of your energy is going in from electricity into light, then that's really good for the lifetime of the devices as well. But certain applications can tolerate lower efficiency. So, for example, the OLED displays, the organic light-emitting diode displays in TVs, those are around 20 25% efficiency, if, if I'm not mistaken there. And so certain applications can tolerate lower efficiency if they can reach an application that the inorganics can't do, or that maybe there'll be a different form factor. Maybe they'll be might be able to do it over a much larger area, which the inorganics can't really do as easily. Yeah, so there's different numbers for different applications. One of the big issues with the perovskites on the solar side and now on the LED side is they're not that stable. So you make one and then it kind of doesn't last. It lasts days. That's been true with both of them. The solar cell manufacturers and researchers are really getting a pretty good handle on this now. They're, they've come up with a whole slew of techniques to make these things more robust and also to encapsulate them in protective materials that then keep them from interacting with air or with humidity in the air, which are part of the things that really cause them to break down. It's still earlier days on the LED side, so I think they're still trying to get a complete handle scientifically on why these things exactly are breaking down. The other thing I would just add is that the organic light emitters 20 years ago faced the same problem. And and so the research community at that time really had to grapple with how to get those materials to have a longer life. And just by virtue of the fact that we now use them all over the place, that sort of shows you that they made steady, significant progress in doing that. And so there's a lot of hope that that will happen as well with the LEDs, but they have to prove it. Okay, thanks so much, Bob. You're welcome. Thank you. Stay tuned for an interview with Caitlin Thurber about human endurance. This week's episode is brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about STEAM, that's science, technology, engineering, art, and math, fun. With a KiwiCo subscription, each month, the kid in your life will receive a fun, engaging new project, which will help develop their creativity and confidence. The projects are designed to spark tinkering and learning in kids of all ages. All these projects, their inspiration and activities are created by a team of product designers in-house in Mountain View, California, and rigorously tested by kids. Every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project, detailed, easy-to-follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn even more about the crate's theme. KiwiCo inspires kids to see themselves as makers and is on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners a chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com magazine. That's kiwico.com magazine. 
when we push ourselves to the limits, what what are those limits? What do we mean when we say, you know, you're testing your endurance? Well, Caitlin Thurber and colleagues wrote this week in Science Advances, they provided some new evidence for what some of those endurance limits might be. Hi, Caitlin. Hi. So you had a really amazing sample set here when you were going to be studying human endurance. Can you talk about the racers? So when I was working at Hunter College in Dr. Ponzer's lab, an amazing opportunity came up to do some research with a group of people that were running from the Pacific coast to the Atlantic coast in the Race Across the USA event. They were doing six marathons per week for 20 weeks. That is a lot of running. Uh, It seems like it would be a big chunk of your year to do this much running. Yeah, it's an unbelievable amount of running. And it's the longest event to date that has associated metabolic measurements, which is why I think everyone that participated in the research, my research was only one part of the data that was collected, but everyone just jumped at the chance to be able to be a part of it. Right. Well, let's talk about what we knew before you took this data. So the idea was people have a baseline metabolism. And then when they push themselves, when they do a marathon, that metabolism kicks into high gear and they start using resources differently. What do we know about that difference, that change when um, people put themselves to the test? Here, we're measuring something called sustained metabolic scope. So we're measuring it in terms of a factor of BMR, your basal metabolic rate. So we talk about things in terms of like four to five times BMR. So what would an example of of an event that would cause your body to metabolize at four times its normal rate? So that example that I gave is a pretty commonly quoted one, and it's, it's actually from the measurements taken during the Tour de France. That lasts 21 to 23 days. Wow. That was kind of the number that you had going into this. If you're going to spend 20 days pushing your body to its limit, this is the metabolic rate that people are going to be operating under. What happened when you looked at these 140-day events? We took some measurements pre-race for our runners, and then we measured again after about five days of consecutive marathons and found that based on our predictions, they were pretty much spot on where we expected them to be in their total energy expenditure. The difference came in week 20. (laughs) 20 weeks later. Wow. Okay. So 20 weeks later, what we saw was that they had essentially decreased their total energy expenditure significantly below what we expected. They're running about 20% lower in their total energy expenditure from week one. Mm. And after we accounted for changes in body mass and daily mileage, things like that, they were about 600 kilocalories a day lower than what we expected. But going back to the measure we were talking about before, their uh, BMR, how, how was that? What was that multiplier? Yeah. So actually what we found that number to be was about 2.5 times BMR. And you also saw a decrease in energy expenditure. And you you didn't expect that? What we saw happening has been documented before. It's a type of constrained energy expenditure. What we were really able to document nicely in this paper is that essentially what happens to your sustained metabolic scope 
is there's a strong negative correlation with event duration. Mm -hmm. So the difference between the very, very high numbers that the Tour de France cyclists are able to maintain for 20 to 23 days is essentially unsustainable right past about 70 days Mm -hmm. do you think that if there was a longer event this relationship would continue or do you do you think that the number would change again where the curve flattens out happens around around maybe 100 days i think that they had essentially settled into a routine of where their metabolic rate was we do have one longer data set included in our study and that's pregnancy which lasts 280 days (laughs) kind of for similar reasons and that fits the curve as well yep what other events did you you know use from past research to kind of look at how they fit this relationship between metabolism and the length of an event we looked at a lot of endurance studies so more marathon events ultra marathon events Ironman, some Arctic trekking, lots of different sports. What are the things that you try to figure out by looking across all these different types of events? Cycling, running, swimming, pregnancy. Is is there something that is a rule for the body as a whole versus your legs? Right. So comparing all those different studies, what we see is that they all fit this same curve of sustained metabolic scope pretty perfectly. So it doesn't really matter what type of energy expenditure, whether you're swimming or running or just walking across the Arctic, everyone's following the same rules when it comes to what their body is capable of achieving. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you see you're doing great at the beginning of the race, you know, week one, but by week 20, your body's like, okay, we need to like keep some muscle mass, keep some fat. We're not going to burn everything all the time. We got to go down to like two and a half BMR. Exactly. Exactly. Very cool. Well, why don't you tell me how you get the metabolism rate from the racers? Like, what do you do? In order to measure total energy expenditure, we used a process called doubly labeled water. Mm Mm-hmm where we basically just give them water to drink, but the water is made up of heavy isotopes of hydrogen, oxygen. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to get really technical, I used a Picaro cavity ring down spectrometer to measure the difference in rates of the two isotopes as they were being expelled in their urine. So I collected their urine. And that tells you what their metabolism rate is or something like that? The hydrogen is going to be expelled by the body as water, mm-hmm. but the oxygen is going to be expelled as carbon dioxide and water. Hmm. So we just look at the difference between the rate of the hydrogens and the oxygens, and we use that to get the rate of carbon dioxide. And once we have a rate of carbon dioxide, then we can calculate total energy expenditure. What are the ideas about why there is this constraint? Can you tell from this data and comparing it to past experiments what part of the body is the limiting factor here? The reason that we've come up with in this study as the limiting factor is the human elementary system. Basically, you're unable to take in the amount of energy needed to sustain the energy expenditure for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. The body's only able to capture a certain amount of energy 
which we calculated at 2.36 times BMR from what they're eating per day. After that, you're going to have to dip into energy reserves. Mm -hmm. That's not a sustainable amount. Why wouldn't we be really efficient at taking apart our food and absorbing the nutrients? What trade-off are we giving up? Why would we not just digest every calorie that came our way? The interconnectivity of all the body systems is Mm -hmm. what makes this so complicated to parse out. Yeah. It's not only the elementary system. There's going to be other things that are also working in tandem with it, but that's to find out later. All right, Caitlin, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Caitlin Thurber is a biologist at NASA Community College in the Department of Biology. You can find a link to her article in Science Advances at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places, or you can listen on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. The show is produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.